Chapter thirty three, part two of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter thirty three, part two. There is little doubt that Chollop would have planted this standard in Eden at Mark's expense in return for his plainness of speech, for the genuine freedom is dumb save when she vaunts herself. But for the utter desolation and decay prevailing in the settlement, and his own approaching departure from it. As it was, he contented himself with showing Mark one of the revolving pistols, and asking him what he thought of that weapon. "'It ain't long since I shot a man down with that, sir, in the state of Illinois,' observed Chollop. "'Did you indeed?' said Mark, without the smallest agitation. "'Very free of you, and very independent.' "'I shot him down, sir,' pursued Chollop, "'for asserting in the Spartan portico, a tri-weekly journal, "'that the ancient Athenians went ahead of the present local foco ticket.' "'And what's that?' asked Mark." "'European not to know,' said Chollop, smoking placidly. "'European quite.' After a short devotion to the interests of the magic circle, he resumed the conversation by observing, "'You won't half feel yourself at home in Eden now.' "'No,' said Mark, "'I don't.' "'You miss the imposts of your country. You miss the house dues,' observed Chollop. "'And the houses, rather,' said Mark. "'No window dues here, sir,' observed Chollop. "'And no windows to put em on,' said Mark. "'No stakes, no dungeons, no blocks, no racks, "'no scaffolds, no thumbscrews, no pikes, no pillories,' said Chollop. "'Nothing but rewalwers and bowie knives,' returned Mark. "'And what are they? Not worth mentioning.' "'The man who had met them on the night of their arrival "'came crawling up at this juncture and looked in at the door. "'Well, sir,' said Chollop, "'how do you get along?' He had considerable difficulty in getting along at all, and said as much in reply. "'Mr. Coe and me, sir,' observed Chollop, "'are disputating a piece. He ought to be slicked up pretty smart to disputate between the old world and the new, I do expect.' "'Well,' returned the miserable shadow, "'so he had.' "'I was merely observing, sir,' said Mark, addressing this new visitor, "'that I looked upon the city in which we have the honour to live as being swampy.' "'What's your sentiments?' "'I opinionate it's moist, perhaps, at certain times,' returned the man. "'But not as moist as England, sir,' cried Chollop, with a fierce expression in his face. "'Oh, not as moist as England, let alone its institutions,' said the man. "'I should hope there ain't a swamp in all America as don't whip that small island into mush and molasses,' observed Chollop decisively. "'You bought slick, straight, and right away of scatter, sir?' to Mark. He answered in the affirmative. Mr. Chollop winked at the other citizen. "'Scatter is a smart man, sir. He is a rising man. He is a man as will come upwards, right side up, sir.' Mr. Chollop winked again at the other citizen. "'He should have his right side very high up, if I had my way,' said Mark. "'As high up as the top of a good tall gallows, perhaps.' Mr. Chollop was so delighted at the smartness of his excellent countryman having been too much for the Britisher, and at the Britisher's resenting it, that he could contain himself no longer, and broke forth in a shout of delight. 
but the strangest exposition of this ruling passion was in the other, the pestilent-stricken, broken, miserable shadow of a man who derived so much entertainment from the circumstance that he seemed to forget his own ruin in thinking of it, and laughed outright when he said that scatter was a smart man and had drawed a lot of British capital that way as sure as sun-up. After a full enjoyment of this joke, Mr. Hannibal Chollop sat smoking and improving the circle, without making any attempts either to converse or to take leave, apparently labouring under the not uncommon delusion that for a free and enlightened citizen of the United States to convert another man's house into a spittoon for two or three hours together was a delicate attention, full of interest and politeness, of which nobody could ever tire. At last he rose. "'I am a-going easy,' he observed. Mark entreated him to take particular care of himself. "'Afore I go,' he said sternly, "'I have got a leetle word to say to you. "'You are darnation cute, you are.' Mark thanked him for the compliment. "'But you are much too cute to last. "'I can't conceive of any spotted painter in the bush "'as ever was so riddled through and through as you will be, I bet.' "'What for?' asked Mark. "'We must be cracked up, sir,' retorted Chollop in a tone of menace. "'You are not now in a despotic land. "'We are a model to the earth, and must be just cracked up, I tell you.' "'What? I speak too free, do I?' cried Mark. "'I have drawed upon a man and fired upon a man for less,' said Chollop, frowning. "'I have knowed strong men obliged to make themselves uncommon scase for less.' I have knowed men lynched for less, and beaten into punkinsars for less, by an enlightened people. We are the intellect and virtue of the earth, the cream of human nature, and the flower of moral force. Our backs is easy riz. We must be cracked up, or they rises, and we snarls, we shows our teeth, I tell you, fierce. You'd better crack us up, you had. After the delivery of this caution, Mr. Chollop departed, with Ripper, Tickler, and the revolvers, all ready for action on the shortest notice. "'Come out from under the blanket, sir,' said Mark. "'He's gone.' "'What's this?' he added softly, kneeling down to look into his partner's face and taking his hot hand. "'What's come of all that chattering and swaggering? He's wandering in his mind to-night and don't know me.' Martin, indeed, was dangerously ill, very near his death. He lay in that state many days, during which time Mark's poor friends regardless of themselves, attended him. Mark, fatigued in mind and body, working all the day and sitting up at night, worn with hard living in the unaccustomed toil of his new life, surrounded by dismal and discouraging circumstances of every kind, never complained or yielded in the least degree. If ever he had thought Martin selfish or inconsiderate, or had deemed him energetic only by fits and starts, and then too passive for their desperate fortunes, he now forgot it all. He remembered nothing but the better qualities of his fellow-wanderer, and was devoted to him heart and hand. Many weeks elapsed before Martin was strong enough to move about with the help of a stick in Mark's arm, and even then his recovery, for want of wholesome air and proper nourishment, was very slow. He was yet in a feeble and weak condition, when the misfortune he had so much dreaded fell upon them. Mark was taken ill. Mark fought against it, but the malady fought harder, and his efforts were in vain. "'Floored for the present, sir,' he said one morning, sinking back upon his bed. "'But jolly!' 
floored indeed, and by a heavy blow, as any one but Martin might have known beforehand. If Mark's friends had been kind to Martin, and they had been very, they were twenty times kinder to Mark, and now it was Martin's turn to work, and sit beside the bed and watch, and listen through the long, long nights to every sound in the gloomy wilderness, and hear poor Mr. Tapley in his wandering fancy, playing at skittles in the dragon, making love remonstrances to Mrs. Lupin, getting his sea-legs on board the screw, travelling with old Tom Pinch on English roads, and burning stumps of trees in Eden all at once. But whenever Martin gave him drink or medicine, or tended him in any way, or came into the house returning from some drudgery without, the patient Mr. Tapley brightened up and cried, "'I'm jolly, sir! I'm jolly!' Now, when Martin began to think of this, and to look at Mark as he lay there, never reproaching him by so much as an expression of regret, never murmuring, always striving to be manful and staunch, he began to think, how was it that this man, who had had so few advantages, was so much better than he who had had so many? And attendance upon a sick-bed, but especially the sick-bed of one whom we have been accustomed to see in full activity and vigour, being a great breeder of reflection, he began to ask himself in what they differed. He was assisted in coming to a conclusion on this head by the frequent presence of Mark's friend, their fellow-passenger across the ocean, which suggested to him that, in regard to having aided her, for example, they had differed very much. Somehow he coupled Tom Pinch with this train of reflection, and thinking that Tom would be very likely to have struck up the same sort of acquaintance under similar circumstances, began to think in what respects two people so extremely different were like each other and were unlike him. At first sight there was nothing very distressing in these meditations, but they did undoubtedly distress him for all that. Martin's nature was a frank and generous one, but he had been bred up in his grandfather's house, and it will usually be found that the meaner domestic vices propagate themselves to be their own antagonists. Selfishness does this especially. So do suspicion, cunning, stealth, and covetous propensities. Martin had unconsciously reasoned as a child, my guardian takes so much thought of himself that unless I do the like by myself, I shall be forgotten. So he had grown selfish. But he had never known it. If any one had taxed him with the vice, he would have indignantly repelled the accusation, and conceived himself unworthily aspersed. He never would have known it, but that being newly risen from a bed of dangerous sickness, to watch by such another couch, he felt how nearly self had dropped into the grave, and what a poor, dependent, miserable thing it was. It was natural for him to reflect—he had months to do it in—upon his own escape and Mark's extremity. This led him to consider which of them could be the better spared, and why. Then the curtain slowly rose a very little way, and self, self, self was shown below. He asked himself, besides, when dreading Mark's decease, as all men do and must at such a time, whether he had done his duty by him, and had deserved and made a good response to his fidelity and zeal. No! Short as their companionship had been, he felt in many, many instances that there was blame against himself, and still inquiring why, the curtain slowly rose a little more, and self, 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 dilated on the scene. 
It was long before he fixed the knowledge of himself so firmly in his mind that he could thoroughly discern the truth. But in the hideous solitude of that most hideous place, with hope so far removed, ambition quenched, and death beside him rattling at the very door, reflection came as in a plague-beleaguered town, and so he felt and knew the failing of his life, and saw distinctly what an ugly spot it was. Eden was a hard school to learn so hard a lesson in, but there were teachers in the swamp and thicket and the pestilential air who had a searching method of their own. He made a solemn resolution that when his strength returned he would not dispute the point or resist the conviction, but would look upon it as an established fact that selfishness was in his breast and must be rooted out. He was so doubtful, and with justice, of his own character, that he determined not to say one word of vain regret or good resolve to Mark, but steadily to keep his purpose before his own eyes solely, and there was not a jot of pride in this, nothing but humility and steadfastness, the best armor he could wear. So low had Eden brought him down, so high had Eden raised him up. After a long and lingering illness, in certain forlorn stages of which, when too far gone to speak, he had feebly written, Jolly, on a slate, Mark showed some symptoms of returning health. They came and went, and flickered for a time, but he began to mend at last decidedly, and after that continued to improve from day to day. As soon as he was well enough to talk, without fatigue, Martin consulted him upon a project he had in his mind, and which a few months back he would have carried into execution without troubling anybody's head but his own. "'Ours is a desperate case,' said Martin, plainly. "'The place is deserted. Its failure must have become known, and selling what we have bought to any one for anything is hopeless, even if it were honest. We left home on a mad enterprise and have failed. The only hope left us, the only one end for which we have now to try, is to quit this settlement for ever and get back to England. Anyhow, by any means, only to get back there, Mark. That's all, sir, returned Mr. Tapley, with a significant stress upon the words. Only that. Now, upon this side of the water, said Martin, we have but one friend who can help us, and that is Mr. Bevan. I thought of him when you was ill, said Mark. "'But for the time that would be lost, I would even write to my grandfather,' Martin went on to say, "'and implore him for money to free us from this trap into which we were so cruelly decoyed. "'Shall I try Mr. Bevan first? "'He is a very pleasant sort of a gentleman,' said Mark. "'I think so. "'The few goods we brought here, and in which we spent our money, "'would produce something if sold,' resumed Martin, "'and whatever they realize shall be paid him instantly. "'But they can't be sold here.' "'There's nobody but corpses to buy him,' said Mr. Tapley, shaking his head with a rueful air. "'And pigs?' "'Shall I tell him so, and only ask him for money enough to enable us by the cheapest means to reach New York, or any port from which we may hope to get a passage home by serving in any capacity, explaining to him at the same time how I am connected, and that I will endeavour to repay him, even through my grandfather, immediately on our arrival in England?' "'Why, to be sure,' said Mark. "'He can only say no, and he may say yes. "'If you don't mind trying him, sir.' "'Mind!' exclaimed Martin. 
I am to blame for coming here, and I would do anything to get away. I grieve to think of the past. If I had taken your opinion sooner, Mark, we never should have been here, I am certain. Mr. Tapley was very much surprised at this admission, but protested with great vehemence that they would have been there all the same, and that he had set his heart upon coming to Eden from the first word he had ever heard of it. Martin then read him a letter to Mr. Bevan, which he had already prepared. It was frankly and ingenuously written, and described their situation without the least concealment, plainly stated the miseries they had undergone, and preferred their request in modest but straightforward terms. Mark highly commended it, and they determined to dispatch it by the next steamboat going the right way that might call to take in wood at Eden, where there was plenty of wood to spare. Not knowing how to address Mr. Bevan at his own place of abode, Martin superscribed it to the care of the memorable Mr. Norris of New York, and wrote upon the cover an entreaty that it might be forwarded without delay. More than a week elapsed before a boat appeared, but at length they were awakened very early one morning by the high-pressure snorting of the Esau Slodge, named after one of the most remarkable men in the country, who had been very eminent somewhere. Hurrying down to the landing-place, they got it safe on board, and waiting anxiously to see the boat depart, stopped up the gangway, an instance of neglect which caused the captain of the Esau Slodge to wish he might be sifted fine as flour and whittled small as chips, that if they didn't come off that there fixing right to mark two, he'd spill em in the drink, whereby the captain metaphorically said he'd throw them in the river. They were not likely to receive an answer for eight or ten weeks at the earliest. In the meantime they devoted such strength as they had to the attempted improvement of their land, to clearing some of it and preparing it for useful purposes. Monstrously defective as their farming was, still it was better than their neighbors, for Mark had some practical knowledge of such matters, and Martin learned of him, whereas the other settlers who remained upon the putrid swamp a mere handful, and those withered by disease, appeared to have wandered there with the idea that husbandry was the natural gift of all mankind. They helped each other, after their own manner in these struggles, and in all others, but they worked as hopelessly and sadly as a gang of convicts in a penal settlement. Often at night, when Mark and Martin were alone, and lying down to sleep, they spoke of home, familiar places, houses, roads, and people whom they knew, sometimes in the lively hope of seeing them again, and sometimes with a sorrowful tranquillity, as if that hope were dead. It was a source of great amazement to Mark Tapley to find, pervading all these conversations, a singular alteration in Martin. "'I don't know what to make of him,' he thought one night. "'He ain't what I supposed. He don't think of himself half as much.' "'I'll try him again. Asleep, sir?' "'No, Mark. Thinking of home, sir?' "'Yes, Mark.' "'So was I, sir. I was wondering how Mr. Pinch and Mr. Pecksniff gets on now.' "'Poor Tom,' said Martin, thoughtfully. "'Weak-minded man, sir,' observed Mr. Tapley. "'Plays the organ for nothing, sir. Takes no care of himself.' "'I wish he took a little more, indeed,' said Martin. "'Though I don't know why I should.' "'We shouldn't like him half as well, perhaps.' "'He gets put upon, sir,' hinted Mark. "'Yes,' said Martin, after a short silence. "'I know that, Mark.' 
He spoke so regretfully that his partner abandoned the theme, and was silent for a short time, until he had thought of another. "'Ah, sir,' said Mark, with a sigh, "'dear me, you've ventured a good deal for a young lady's love.' "'I tell you what, I'm not so sure of that, Mark,' was the reply, so hastily and energetically spoken that Martin sat up in his bed to give it. "'I begin to be far from clear upon it. You may depend upon it she is very unhappy.' She has sacrificed her peace of mind. She has endangered her interests very much. She can't run away from those who are jealous of her and opposed to her, as I have done. She has to endure, Mark, to endure without the possibility of action, poor girl. I begin to think that she has more to bear than ever I had. Upon my soul I do. Mr. Tapley opened his eyes wide in the dark, but did not interrupt. "'And I'll tell you a secret, Mark,' said Martin, "'since we are upon this subject. "'That ring—' "'Which ring, sir?' Mark inquired, "'opening his eyes still wider. "'That ring she gave me when we parted, Mark. "'She bought it. "'Bought it knowing I was poor and proud. "'Heaven help me! "'Proud! "'And wanted money.' "'Who says so, sir?' asked Mark. "'I say so. "'I know it. "'I thought of it, my good fellow, "'hundreds of times while you were lying ill.' "'and like a beast I took it from her hand and wore it on my own "'and never dreamed of this even at the moment when I parted with it "'when some faint glimmering of the truth might surely have possessed me. "'But it's late,' said Martin, checking himself, "'and you are weak and tired, I know. "'You only talk to cheer me up. "'Good night. God bless you, Mark.' "'God bless you, sir. "'But I'm regularly defrauded,' thought Mr. Tapley, "'turning round with a happy face.' "'It's a swindle. I never entered for this sort of service. "'There will be no credit in being jolly with him.' "'The time wore on, and other steamboats coming from the point "'on which their hopes were fixed, arrived to take in wood, "'but still no answer to the letter. "'Rain, heat, foul slime, and noxious vapour, "'with all the ills and filthy things they bred, prevailed. "'The earth, the air, the vegetation, and the water that they drank— all teemed with deadly properties. Their fellow-passenger had lost two children long before, and buried now her last. Such things are much too common to be widely known or cared for. Smart citizens grow rich, and friendless victims smart and die, and are forgotten. That is all. At last a boat came panting up the ugly river, and stopped at Eden. Mark was waiting at the wood-hut when it came, and had a letter handed to him from on board. He bore it off to Martin. They looked at one another, trembling. "'It feels heavy,' faltered Martin, and opening it, a little roll of dollar notes fell out upon the ground. What either of them said, or did, or felt, at first, neither of them knew. All Mark could ever tell was that he was at the river's bank again, out of breath, before the boat had gone, "'inquiring when it would retrace its track and put in there. "'The answer was, in ten or twelve days, "'notwithstanding which they began to get their goods together "'and to tie them up that very night. "'When this stage of excitement was passed, "'each of them believed, they found this out in talking of it afterwards, "'that he would surely die before the boat returned. "'They lived, however, and it came, "'after the lapse of three long, crawling weeks.' At sunrise, on an autumn day, they stood upon her deck. "'Courage! We shall meet again!' cried Martin, waving his hand to two thin figures on the bank. "'In the old world!' 
or in the next one,' added Mark below his breath, "'to see them standing side by side so quiet is a most the worst of all.' They looked at one another as the vessel moved away, and then looked backward at the spot from which it hurried fast. The log-house, with the open door and drooping trees about it, the stagnant morning mist and red sun dimly seen beyond, the vapour rising up from land and river, the quick stream making the loathsome banks it washed more flat and dull. How often they returned in dreams! How often it was happiness to wake and find them shadows that had vanished! End of chapter 33